You are listening to the Non-Traditional Physician Assistant Podcast. So two of the non-traditional physician assistant or PA podcast. My name is Kirsten Kamaha and I am your host. In the last podcast, I touched a little bit on how I found out about the PA profession and how I came to want to be a PA. Today, I want to spend a little time introducing the profession a little bit more. And then after that, I'm hoping to go through some of the initial steps that I took when I started looking at actually applying to physician assistant grad programs. So first of all, what is a PA? According to AAPA, which is the American Academy of Physician Associates, I should make a quick note here. So I still say physician assistant a lot because that is the original title of the profession back when it was created. However, recently, to combat issues with people not totally understanding what a physician assistant is, uh, maybe misunderstanding or confusing us with medical assistants or other healthcare roles that don't require the same training and don't have the same uh, amount of autonomy and skill level. In the last couple years, there's been a push to change the name. It was decided that instead of being called physician assistants, sounding like we're the assistant to the physician, we will now be known as physician associates so that we're seen more as colleagues to physicians. That's just a a very brief kind of synopsis of that. Uh, Though physician assistants or PAs, physician associates, we work very closely with physicians at times, that really can depend on the setting. According to AAPA, PAs are licensed clinicians who practice medicine in every specialty and setting. PAs are dedicated to expanding access to care, transforming health wellness through team-based medical practice. That's a very like broad overview and honestly to learn more about the profession it's good to shadow some PAs because every single PA will have a different role in their whatever setting that they work in and depending on the healthcare team that they're a part of they might be practicing with a lot of autonomy where they're doing a lot of things independently by themselves or they might kind of be assisting in some capacity maybe in the OR in an operating room we could be acting as first assist so we could be helping out with the surgery just some quick little facts about PAs the PA profession started in 1967 it was founded by a medical doctor Eugene A. Stead of the Duke University Medical Center. Uh, He actually made the profession because there were some Navy hospital corpsmen who had extensive training, uh, medical training during their military service, and he really felt that they could be put to good use, especially when he recognized that there was a shortage of primary care physicians. So the PA profession was kind of created by a medical doctor 
as a as an answer to this shortage. So the PA profession really has its roots in primary care, in family medicine, in internal medicine, but it has really branched out because of the way that physician assistants are trained. In our programs, we're trained to be very generalists. Uh, so once you go on rotations, which we're required to have 2,000 hours of clinical experience from those rotations, you get a, a wide variety of areas that rotations are done in. So yes, there are surgical rotations where we're in the operating rooms. There are emergency medicine rotations. There are primary care rotations. You often get to choose some electives as well in your program. We also can work in pediatrics. We can work in a lot of other specialties and subspecialties. Uh, uh, you might have a geriatrics rotation where you work with elderly populations. PAs are trained across a broad spectrum of medicine. Uh, we go to get a master's degree. So uh, that's about two years of education. Some programs are as short as two years, 24 months. Some programs can be as long as, I, I don't know, 30 months or or maybe even three years uh, if it's kind of a part-time program. And essentially, in order to get this license, uh, to get our license to practice, we have to, you know, obviously graduate, make it through that program, and then we must pass the certification exam, which is called the PANTS. It's uh, P-A-N-C-E, the PANTS. And then after passing the pants, we're able to practice and get jobs in, you know, across the board, a lot of different specialties. Again, a lot of PAs will work in primary care. And then we also have to do continuing medical education. Just like physicians and nurse practitioners, we have to continue to grow and, and learn more about uh, medicine because it's always a growing and changing science. And then uh, every 10 years, PAs have to take a recertification exam, which is known as the PANRE, so P-A-N-R-E. So again, that's every 10 years, and I think they've changed a little bit about how that works, but essentially that's, that's kind of what it takes to become a PA in a nutshell. This is all information that you can find on aapa.org which again is the American Academy of Physician Associates. According to AAPA, there are about 28% of PAs working in surgery, some kind of surgical subspecialty. There are about 25.5% working in a variety of healthcare settings just designated as other, which can be psychiatry, hospice and palliative care, obstetrics and gynecology, addiction medicine, pain management, public health, and dermatology. So that there's a bunch of specialties in there. And then about close to 20% are in primary care. I'm rounding up and down all over the place here. So, um, and yeah, so those are kind of the main areas that you can find uh, PAs in. That was just an introduction. To the PA profession and now I wanted to get into a little bit more detail about what I did once I figured out that I wanted to pursue this career and start doing the work to get into a PA program myself. So the first step I would recommend you want to look at the PA programs 
and try to figure out there's so many across the country but try to figure out a good good handful that you might want to apply to typically i've heard that applicants who are accepted most often apply to an average of i believe i want to say like seven or eight between seven and ten and some people apply to as many as 18 20 if you get into one school then that's great and that's one less year that you have to worry about losing a year of, of potentially working as a pa i was limited more than other people just in that i have a family uh, my husband i knew was not really interested in moving from where we live here in michigan so because of that i was pretty much just looking at schools in southeastern Michigan area. Basically, you want to find the programs that you're interested in and you need to look at what they require from applicants. Every school is a little bit different, so it can be a little bit tricky, especially when you're looking at things like prerequisites, uh, when, when prerequisites expire, and things like that. But basically, you want to know what your schools are so that you can make a plan from there. Other people who are not limited other than choosing based on location or the weather um, you can always try to narrow things down by using a service called mypabox.com I never used it myself so I'm not really trying to plug it but I just have heard that that is a kind of a quicker easier way to figure out what programs uh, might be a good fit for you so you have to pay to get a subscription in order to use it but then i know that they're really trying to branch out and it looks like they not only will help you narrow down your search for pa schools but they also provide mock interviews essay revision services things like that um so that's that's an option instead of manually going through and looking up a bunch of programs uh but i would still once you decide where you're interested in always go to the websites of those programs because they often change and update their requirements. So you just want to be looking at them frequently. All right. Once you've figured out what schools you want to apply to and you're considering, you need to look at the prerequisite courses that are required by that school. So in order to get into a physician assistant school, you need to make sure that you are taking all the classes that they require and you are meeting their minimum requirements for in terms of how long how long ago could you have taken that course and they'll accept it and also are your grades meeting their requirements a lot of schools will have a minimum gpa requirement so they might say you have to have at least a 3.0 in all of your like individual uh, prereq courses. Others might say you need an average of 3.5 or something like that, or you need a minimum of 3.5. But because the admissions process is so competitive, it's really important that you meet that because if you cannot meet that and they have that requirement and then you decide to apply with your with your grades that are a little bit lower than what they what they want, they are gonna throw out your application. So 
it's hard, but make sure you're looking at that. That's important too. And you can, you know, pick your schools based on the minimum GPA requirements as well. That's also a possibility. So once you figure out the prerequisites that are required, you can start trying to figure out a schedule or what you want to take. This again is very, you know, applicable for people like myself who are non-traditional. I know people who are bio majors and things like that who graduated recently, this isn't going to apply for you as much. Hopefully you already did all this so that you don't have to go back for anything. Uh, but I had a bachelor of music degree, so I had to go back for everything because nothing that I did in undergrad was going to work and it was long enough ago that it probably would have expired anyway if I had. I personally took most of my classes at community colleges because I already had a bachelor's degree. My bachelor's GPA was good, good enough that I wasn't worried about having to take extra classes to bump it up or anything like that. And I knew I wanted to become a PA. I didn't really want to get a nursing degree on the way. It didn't really make sense for me. I just pretty much wanted to save as much money as possible while taking all the required courses. And something to keep in mind is that oftentimes if you did not graduate with a science degree and you are retaking all of these science prereqs and whatnot, a lot of times there are prerequisites to the prerequisites. So you're not just going to be jumping right into organic chemistry, but you're going to be taking a chemistry one and chemistry two or chemistry 101, chemistry 102, whatever that is, before you can take organic chemistry. Um, and yeah, organic chemistry is just an example I'm giving because that is a very common uh, PA school prerequisite. So that's something to keep in mind. You're rarely gonna be taking just like the six or seven prerequisites that the PA programs require. Something important to think about while you're figuring out your class schedule is that you need to make sure you have a good balance because PA schools want to see that you can handle a lot of things at once. They value people who are very active, who are involved in a lot of things. But again, you have to do well in your classes. You have to maintain that certain GPA that they're looking for or even exceed it just because it's so competitive. Yeah, you can work full time and try to take uh, 16 credit hours, but for most people, I would guess that's not, even if that's economically, financially more responsible, it's not, it's going to drive you crazy and it's not feasible for your life and for your mental health. So you need to get good grades. That's very important. So strike a balance, figure out what works. For me, when I was working full time, uh, I would take two four credit courses. So I often take like eight credits and I'd work full time. I don't think I ever did more than that when I was working full time and my GPA was good. I got really good grades in those classes. So it might not have been like the most impressive thing that I wasn't overextending myself, but there were a lot of other things going on behind the scenes, you know, that I could always bring up if I was asked about it. I still had my son to take care of. I volunteered, so I had a lot of things going on besides just working and taking classes. The next step after you figure out your schedule is finding ways to get patient care experience or healthcare experience. Some programs divide it up and they'll say patient care experience, you need to have 
at least this many hours. Patient care experience is hands-on. So you're working with patients, you're possibly examining them, assessing them on some level. You have some responsibility for their care and you are the one uh, providing care at some level. It might not be like a really high level. You might be like a CNA doing skin checks in a hospital. Nevertheless, you are providing some care um, and it is hands-on. So some examples of patient care experience that people often have for PA school would be, again, like I said, a CNA, depending on the course, uh, depending on the description. uh, It can be more healthcare experience or it can be very hands-on patient care experience. So it's important to look at the duties and what you're actually going to be doing. Physical therapy aid is very hands-on. The back office medical assistant. So if you're taking the patients back, you're doing vitals, you're finding out their chief complaint, you're performing the, the ear washes or the EKGs or whatever, you're getting the A1Cs, those things are hands-on patient care experience. A really great higher up Example would be a nurse, and a lot of people really like EMTs because you learn how to do a lot of hands-on skills, and you also have to deal with lots of different kinds of patients and people, and often under what I imagine would be stressful circumstances, so a lot of programs I think like to see that. Consider when you're thinking about what would be good patient care experience, what training is needed, and how much money do you want to put into getting that training. So I started as a CNA, and the reason I chose that is because I found a program, a training program I was able to complete in the course of about two and a half weeks with clinicals, and it was about $600 at the time. Nothing is cheap. Nothing about the process to getting to physician assistant school is cheap or easy, but Compared to some of the other options, I thought it was one of the, the cheaper cheaper options at the time. I started out as a CNA. I worked in a long-term care facility, or I should say skilled nursing facility, SNF, for about three months. But it was a lot of um, brief changes, bed changes. There were some hands-on skills, like I mentioned, like skin assessment and things like that. But ultimately, the nurses were responsible for a lot more um, of those kinds of things and we did a lot more with activities of daily living which is important for sure for patients care but it's not uh i wasn't feeling like i was learning a whole lot medically eventually i moved on from that i kind of used that that certification as a stepping stone and i got a physician in a neurosurgery clinic i worked there for about a year taking a lot of spinal x-rays and uh, also doing history and physicals with patients a lot. So it was kind of like a hybrid MA slash x-ray job. And then I wasn't really looking for a job, but something kind of came up, uh, an opportunity just kind of came up to work as an MA medical assistant, back office medical assistant in a primary care office. So I kind of jumped on that opportunity and I was able to start working that job part-time. I was also finishing up some prerequisite courses, so I did not work full-time. Uh, pretty much all of my 
pretty much all of my jobs I worked part-time at some point just because of my coursework and things like that. At first, I was hired on without being certified as an MA. I still had my CNA certification, but I don't really think that mattered, honestly. But when our company was bought out, then I had to get certified. So I ended up just taking an online MA certification course, studying for the test. It wasn't really a course, it was mostly like self-guided study. And then I took a test and I passed it. And that actually was, if I had known about that in the beginning, like that would have been a cheaper option than becoming a CNA. But I didn't really know about that. And I also am not sure because I didn't have any hands-on experience that that would have been the best thing for me to start with, uh, working as a back office MA. But I got that certification, if anyone's interested, through National Health Careers Association, the NHA. And I think it was about, I wanna say $225 or something like that for the study materials and for the exam. I think the exam was like $150. And then the study materials were like 75. So that really wasn't as expensive. But again, for me, I think it was good to have some other hands-on experiences first. And I do think that being an x-ray tech for a little while helped me to stand out more as well because that was, I think that's a little more of a rarity than people applying with who are MAs and CNAs and things like that. Any ways that you can make yourself stand out more too, I think that's always good. Programs want a a wide variety of, of patient care experience and healthcare experience because it makes the class more diverse and, and people with different expertise can kind of weigh in and just it just helps the the classroom discussion more and helps to cement some concepts more. And the last thing that I wanted to touch on, now that you've gotten a schedule of classes and what, you know, some direction on where you're going to go with that, you've found how you're going to get some patient care experience or healthcare experience, what certifications you you can get. The next step I would say is just looking at what else does your program require. And this is not something that you necessarily need to get going on right away simultaneously while you're getting your patient care experience and working full time and blah, 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 you know, whatever. There's a lot of things to do, honestly. It's just to prepare yourself and kind of have a timeline for down the road and know what you need to be doing. When you're looking at these programs, you need to look at their mission statement and see how you're going to fit into their vision for their program. Is volunteering important, for example, to that program? Some programs will only pretty much take applicants who have significant volunteer experience. If that's not you, then I would strongly reconsider those programs if they're making it pretty clear in their mission that, and in their requirements for applicants that you be able to speak about your volunteer experience and show a lot about how that's impacted you. So I would look at that and see what you're willing to do and what you're able to do. You might you might be willing to do volunteer experience. You might just not have really gotten plugged into anything. If you're willing to do volunteer experience and you haven't had a lot of stuff up to this point, then it's never too late to start. 
but I would look at your schedule again, see what you're able to do. Maybe, you know, there's some good things about COVID. One of those things being that there's more, I would say more virtual volunteering opportunities that there than there have been prior to the pandemic. I think when people were forced to stay at home and shelter in place, it really gave some people some ingenuity and the the creativity and creative spirit to make up new ways to help other people and use their energies and ideas for benefiting others. The most important thing that programs are looking for probably if they're wanting volunteer experience is just to see that you've committed to something long term. It's not like, oh, you did this soup kitchen one time and you volunteered at this school one time. They want to see some longevity and that you've really committed yourself, even if it's only for one hour a week or whatever. If you do it over a longer period of time, that's going to speak more um, to your passion for it and your dedication to sticking with something as well. So when you're looking at the schools, some schools will actually list their incoming classes stats like their average age, their average GPA, things like that. I know that some of the schools that I applied to do that. Not all of them, and I would say actually the the minority of them do post that information. But still, it's a really helpful gauge to see how you fit in and if you will fit in well. If they favor a lot of young applicants and they don't like to accept older, non-traditional applicants as much, and you are definitely more in the latter camp like myself, then you might not want to waste your money applying to that program if there's a very low chance that you're going to be accepted. Or, you know, on the flip side, do you want to go to a program that has a lot of young students when you would not fit into that dynamic as well? Sure, like, I think no matter what program you go to, there's always going to be a little bit of diversity. And I think that programs really do want to be more diverse, but there are a lot of obstacles to just getting to the point where you can apply to PA school. It takes a lot of resources and time, so know that you're going to have to make some sacrifices just to get to that point where you can apply. Do you have the resources to go through what it's going to take to apply to PA schools? Applications are not cheap. Uh, The process is not cheap because a lot of times you're working some role like a CNA or MA and you're not going to be making a ton of money in those roles. And simultaneously, you have to be able to afford those application fees and taking these tests. A lot of programs require different uh, exams like the GRE or the PA CAT. And I don't really want to go into what those are too much right now, but just for reference, it's it's not a cheap process um, and it's definitely a, a big commitment. And so I think that's part of the reason why if you join a Facebook group or a pre-PA group, you're going to see people posting their acceptances all the time. And, it, and people are genuinely excited for each other because we all know how much of a sacrifice it is and how much hard work that everyone has to put in to get to this point. But I'm not going to lie, some people are more privileged than other people. Some people have to scrounge and save up every penny that they get and then to work these low, lower paying jobs as well while they're trying to finance their applications and whatnot. It, it's, 
definitely more feasible for people who have good financial support from their family or their spouse or things like that. I feel like it would be very hard, it would have been very hard for me, so much harder to go through that whole process as a, as, if, as a single mom. But luckily I had my husband to support me and help me out through the process and to provide some flexibility to watch our son or take our son out when I needed to study on the weekends for a class or something, you know, or take a test on the weekend. I think that anyone can do it, but it it definitely, you, you need to have some good support, emotional, financial, just some things that are really important to think about as you consider this pathway. And if you guys have any questions, I'm happy to answer anything at any time. You can always email me at kamaha, this K-A-M as in monkey, A-H-A, dot Kirsten, K-I-R-S as in Sam, T-E-N as in nap, at gmail.com. Uh, you can also reach out and send a message to me at my Instagram, the period, non-traditional, period, pre underscore PA. All right, guys, I hope that's helpful. I know that was a little bit lengthy, but if you guys have any questions or comments or concerns, I'd love to hear it. Feel free to subscribe um, so you can always get updates here when I post another episode and take care.